0: Hey everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello.
1: And I'm Nick Rurkraut.
0: And pour yourself in Aqua Velva, get out your diary for your anniversary treasure hunt. We are going deep into Fincher's filmography. We are celebrating one of our favorite directors, I would say, David Fincher.
1: He's made so many amazing movies and going through these... It was just wild. And then having to rank them was even harder. He's really crafted the 21st century so far, and I can't wait to see what he does next. And we know Mank is coming this fall. I think we're both dying to see this, and I can't wait to talk about him.
0: I think Fincher was an interesting director to do a retrospective on because he doesn't have too many films. So on paper... It wasn't that challenging to watch and rewatch all of his movies, but diving into all of them and thinking about everything that I want to talk about, about why I love this director so much, it became really hard.
1: It became so all-consuming, and we could talk about each one of these for an hour.
0: Oh yeah, each one could easily have its own episode. Maybe not Alien 3, but we'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) So when you hear David Fincher, what do you think of?
1: I think smart script, strong characters, beautifully made in terms of camera and lighting and just composition in general. Very broad things. What do you think of?
0: I think that when I see David Fincher's name attached to something, it's going to be something that I'm interested in no matter what it is. And the first thing that I do think of is the aesthetic. It looks really well made I find his lighting to just be very pleasing. It just works mm-hmm. so well for me. I could just, no matter what the subject matter is of one of his films, fall right into it and enjoy it because of just the lighting. And apart from that, too, I, I love the topics that he takes on. I love his crime thrillers. I love his odes to film noir and realism. He really is the perfect director, I think, for me and for what I like.
1: Again, going through all of these and watching them in order, I didn't realize how thrilling and deeply suspenseful all of these movies are. And it's interesting because I don't associate him with horror, but a lot of his techniques and movies almost lean towards that genre, which is really interesting, but he's such a household name. And all of his films are huge hits, but he hasn't like sold out. He stays true to everything that he wants to do, and I watched a little bit of a documentary on the making of Panic Room today, and being with him on set would be absolutely exhausting.
0: Yeah, it would be terrifying. I mean, he is a Virgo in their truest form. (laughs) (laughs) When I just, I think about working with him, I think that what we do have to talk about is the reputation that he's had so we've talked about like what his work looks like and what we love about his work and what we think of when we hear his name but we also think of someone who is obsessive who is controlling to me he's similar to what i think of when i think of kubrick i think of similar traits in how they work with people And the stories that we hear from the sets and from the making of films, and Mm -hmm. how much control he has over his sets and of his vision artistically, I think is fascinating and something that we'll talk about throughout all of these films as they come up.
1: And as you say that, I think of Hitchcock too, Mm -hmm. because of just how exacting he is and artistic and everything on set that relates. So, did you notice anything in? Going back and watching all of his films, like anything either from film to film or everything he does across the board.
0: Hmm. So, what I noticed, I think, across the board is that he is a master of creating and relieving tension. I really was fascinated by in some of his films, and I'm not going to say which, I'm going to kind of save that for later, but of the women in his films and the roles that they Mm -hmm. have and when they take power back into their own hands I found that really fascinating and I think too what I noticed going from his earlier films to his later films was that I think when we look at his earlier films like Fight Club or Seven they've been described as dark and gritty and bleak whether that's The shot itself or the world that he's created, those are words that we use to describe them. But I think as we move forward and he tries to take on different types of stories, it seems far more realistic. And the control that he has over what I would describe as his own metaphorical language is even stronger as we move forward. And he has like some slight missteps for himself, maybe that we can talk about. But overall, I think as I watched all of them, I was just even more impressed by the command that he has over his own style. Mm -hmm. What did you think?
1: So your answers are more stylistic and metaphorical (laughs) than mine. (laughs) But it's interesting to see his evolution because you definitely get to a point where, and we'll mention this later as we talk about each film, but there's a point where it's like, okay, now this is really what he has solidified himself as and uses for the rest of what mm-hmm. he's made so far. Mm-hmm. But think specifically to me, it was interesting to see how he used CGI in every single movie. Yes. In just very different ways. And it represents different things. Like in Benjamin Button, you have the actual character being CGI pretty much the whole time. And by this point, it's it's evolved and technology is a lot better. But going back to like Alien 3, say, where the alien is... Like horribly pixelated on screen is not great. (laughs) (laughs) But even in small ways in Panic Room, which comprises a lot of the cinematography and Gone Girl, where there's a bloom of sugar and it lands on their faces or the the breath during social network outside. Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting that he makes a point to make this a part of each film.
0: I agree. I love the use of CGI and thinking about how he uses CGI, because certain things you would never expect a director to use or need CGI for, but he does it Mm -hmm. because, again, he has this control over his medium so well, and perhaps to a point of obsessiveness. But one example that I found absolutely hilarious was in Gone Girl, when Tanner Bolt is testing Nick before his big interview and he's throwing gummy bears at him those are CGI mm-hmm. that's why they bounce so oh, perfectly wow. off of him <laughs> and when you think of things like that, that right wow. it's like why yeah. did you need to use CGI right. for that but okay right um, another example that I thought was fun was that in the social network how Army Hammer plays the Winklevi how <laughs> he during the famous regatta scene he uses CGI, of course, to make them twins as one actor, but the way that he uses it for that boat scene in particular with the stunt double was really interesting and very cool. Mm
1: -hmm. And then objects that he uses and brings back in films, you'll get to one later on, which is very chilling but then even something as simple as a pen which is a defining moment in the game where michael douglas's pen explodes in his pocket and Mm -hmm. that has ripple effects in social network there's a moment when they get a 500 million dollar investment and he goes oh use my pen and then in gone girl when amy dunn is writing with and looks at the pen with the stork on it
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: little things like that I absolutely love in Mm -hmm. movies.
0: Yeah, like little props and things that he, Mm -hmm. it's that attention to detail and how he makes these really interesting decisions for which props a character will use and how they work their way into the narrative. And again, I can't recommend enough. If you happen to have any of the movies that we talk about on DVD, or I think you can find a lot of them on YouTube too, the director's commentaries are fascinating he'll just walk you through every decision that he's made
1: and all these things aren't distracting but he makes it a point of reusing these symbols and images in his arsenal which Mm -hmm. is fascinating yeah so let's get started a little bit just on his career and how he started out making music videos which I didn't know
0: it's such a weird start for him I think a really interesting story that I read of his partnership with Madonna on the "Express Yourself" video. So I watched this music video before the podcast because I wanted to see like how does what did Fincher look like in music videos, and mm-hmm. in that video in particular, you can see his love of old Hollywood glamour and just how that looks and. Madonna, who is, we've talked about before on our League of Their Own podcast, Mm -hmm. is very obsessive and controlling as well. So the two of them working together (laughs) on a music video, I can't imagine how they were probably fighting for control. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's an interesting start to your career because that is all about how... Your subject is moving essentially, which he's very good at blocking his actors. I think that's a big part of why his lighting mm-hmm. is so important, and it's an interesting start to have such big talent in music videos before you do your features.
1: Right, and he also worked with George Michael, Michael Jackson, Aerosmith, Billy Idol, and Paula Abdul, amongst many others. And like you said, I think that so important to be able to work with characters and block them and doing that first kind of makes a film which is so much longer than a music video I think that much easier.
0: And then he also has made his foray into TV so he's done House of Cards season one chapter one and two and then he's also done Mindhunter he's done seven episodes in that show both for Netflix and I think when you watch both of these shows you can definitely see Fincher's stamp on them And what I think is so interesting, in particular with House of Cards, is that even though he only did the first two episodes of season one, his stamp persists throughout the show. So he very much Mm -hmm. guided the direction of what that show was going to be and what it looked like. And of course, House of Cards I stopped watching, actually, but the general look of it and the feel of it is very Fincher.
1: The fact that both of those are from Netflix, Mank is going to Netflix, I know Zodiac and Social Network are currently on Netflix, I wonder if this is a trend that we'll be seeing with him, because since Gone Girl, he hasn't made a movie, and that was six years ago, Mm -hmm. and everything since has been Netflix, so very curious about that. Okay, so our big undertaking, so his first film was Alien 3, which came out in 1992, This was my first time watching it. What were your thoughts about his directorial debut?
0: I kind of disown Alien 3 in the way that Fincher disowns Alien 3. It was a very troubled production. He was brought on to cover for Vincent Ward after his version was canceled, and it shows. I think that it's a tough first feature, and what's really challenging here is that I think Alien and Aliens are just spectacular. I adore both of them. Aliens, one of my favorite horror movies ever. And Aliens is my favorite action movie, question mark. (laughs) So I think that when you're following up Alien and Aliens to get to that level is hard. And for me, it it doesn't work. I think the CGI is tough too. And I prefer to think of his first feature as Seven. What do you think about it?
1: I think he was almost put on this pedestal to finish this trilogy mm-hmm. was it
0: Ridley Scott did one and James Cameron did two
1: okay those are two huge names and I think putting Fincher up there too as his first movie is a lot of expectation mm-hmm. and while I feel like it was a good ending it plot wise to finishing this story it was kind of a miss for me it just could have been a lot shorter
0: that'll be a theme we'll talk about too I'm sure with you <laughs>
1: Not overly, but one other time for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I definitely agree that his next film, Seven, was much, much better and came out on September 22nd, 1995, 25 years ago. Insane. Crazy. And his first foray into the psychology of a serial killer.
0: Oh, God. I love this movie so much. This one also, it's our first fincher brad pitt team up which we will talk about (laughs) so it stars brad pitt morgan freeman kevin spacey gwyneth paltrow and general synopsis here two homicide detectives are on a desperate hunt for a serial killer whose crimes are based on the seven deadly sins in this dark and haunting film that takes viewers from the tortured remains of one victim to the next the seasoned detective somerset played by morgan freeman researches each sin in an effort to get inside the killer's mind, while his novice partner Mills, played by Brad Pitt, scoffs at his efforts to unravel the case. And just a warning, we will be spoiling Seven. If you haven't seen it, definitely skip this conversation. Watch the movie and then return to it, because if you haven't seen it, you definitely won't want the ending spoiled.
1: And we're going to get into that pretty quickly here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's interesting you list Kevin Spacey's name because in the movie we don't see his name during the title sequence and it's not shown until after the movie finishes and then it's shown twice so he's the first person and then once they're shown in order of appearance Kevin Spacey as John Doe shows up so I think that's super interesting he wanted to really keep it a secret and for you not to really know who was playing the serial killer
0: Mm -hmm.
1: did you know that the first time around
0: no so Again, theme that will come up on every episode we ever talk about. I watched this movie when I was too young. It really, really traumatized me, and I didn't return to it for several more years. I think at that point, too, I didn't have any preconceived notion of who Kevin Spacey was. I had seen Morgan Freeman Mm -hmm. and Brad Pitt, but I didn't really know anything about him. So anything else that I saw him in later on was troubling. Like He's always been John Doe to me. This film was seriously snubbed. It was only nominated for film editing at the Oscars and ended up losing to Apollo 13.
1: Such a shame because it does deserve more. I think it was because it was an early Fincher film versus The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which did really well nomination wise, Mm -hmm. but definitely didn't deserve as many nominations as it did as seven does.
0: Right. So what I love about this movie, I think that I just love the dynamic between Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. They both give excellent performances and have great chemistry, and they kind of brilliantly expand on this trope that we get a lot of times in cop movies or in crime thrillers where you have this seasoned detective and this hot-headed young pup which I really love Mm -hmm. that with them. I think they're both brilliant in it and they have some amazing line readings, particularly Brad Pitt. So I'm going to share a couple of them. So, (laughs) you know, as the movie progresses and we get all these different victims that are killed because they live their life influenced by one of the seven deadly sins and then the way in which they're murdered also reflects that. Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are trying to figure out any clues that they can. So they're reading a lot of texts. They're going to the library. I love a film too, where it has any character doing research or like going to a library and we're following along (laughs) with them and figuring it out. I love that so much. But it quickly becomes clear that Morgan Freeman is this really smart guy and Brad Pitt just doesn't really care about any of it as much. He's more into, you know, catching the bad guys and... Morgan yeah. Freeman's like I want to get inside his head and figure it out so one of the great lines is Morgan Freeman gives an example from Merchant of Venice the Shakespeare play and Brad Pitt goes didn't see it <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this amazing sequence too when they're in a car together going over all of these potential books that he checked out at the library or and he says of human bondage bondage and Morgan Freeman just goes not what you're thinking of And then he also pronounces Marquis de Sade as Marquis de Chardet, like the musician, (laughs) (laughs) which was just so good. Like thinking about that is just it's so perfect of what that character would do. And I loved that touch.
1: This was one of Brad Pitt's early movies and I think it's interesting that he's kind of playing himself in a way Mm -hmm. as this young actor, young cop, learning he lives emotionally and acts so unlike Morgan Freeman would Mm -hmm. in this movie and ultimately that is his demise.
0: So thinking about any scenes or shots we want to talk about, I love the title sequence. I think that Mindhunter also has a very similar title sequence so this actually in a weird way starts the partnership between Fincher and Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails because they play a remix of Closer the song by Nine Inch Nails over the credits and it's very creepy the way that they're stitched together you have all this handwriting and the idea is that John Doe is writing out the opening credits which I really love I thought that was really interesting.
1: He has kind of an interesting appreciation and focus on his title sequences, but this one here is grueling to watch and very scary. You see him like shaving off his fingertips Mm. so he doesn't have fingerprints and it gets you into the mind of this serial killer.
0: And I think, too, this is how Fincher's experience with music videos comes in, because this is so artistic and so different from what we've seen, and he's moving the title sequence forward in a way that we haven't seen, but he's also, to me, he was hearkening back to the days of the, like, Saul Bass title sequences, Anatomy of a Murder, or those famous Hitchcock ones, so I really love Mm. that, and similar to how you compared him to Hitchcock earlier, I think that's another another way that he does that
1: it's almost like this is his music video in every movie which is so interesting
0: i agree i hadn't thought about that until now and that's totally true yeah so a couple of fun casting trivia bits that i think are really fascinating so denzel actually turned down brad pitt's part saying that the film was too dark and evil And then after seeing a screening, he said he regretted the decision. I think this is interesting, too, because he goes on to play a cop with a mentorship role in Training Day, which is a couple years later. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if he would have taken this part, how Training Day would have played, if people would have seen those characters as clashing at all or too similar.
1: I guess he was young at the time. And maybe his persona in movies hadn't been established yet. But I see Brad Pitt more in this role mm-hmm. because he is more of a, I don't know, likable actor. I think Denzel has planted himself in like the drama scene mm-hmm. and he does a really good job at that.
0: Yeah. And I think too, I would have, if Denzel was in the part, I would have trusted him more to care a little bit more about it and not to have <laughs> been so just like no. hot headed. I think I could have seen him being more like the Morgan Freeman character. And Sylvester mm-hmm. Stallone was also considered for the part of Mills, which is just so strange. And he also turned it down. That's just not right. No, it just does not work at (laughs) all. (laughs) I'm so glad that Brad Pitt got this part because it really did not only cement him as one of Fincher's best collaborators, but it also, I think, moved him in the direction of being a serious actor, quote unquote. He didn't Mm -hmm. take his shirt off, actually, in Seven because of (laughs) Legends of the Fall. He wanted to move away from that reputation, which is so funny because... That is the reputation that he'll always have. I think he can be both.
1: <laughs> and then he does it later on again. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's,
0: you know, then we have Fight It club. didn't stick. <laughs> <laughs> and then also in early stages of production, Al Pacino was considered for the role of Somerset, but couldn't due to scheduling conflicts with City Hall.
1: I'm not sure I would have liked this either. I like how Morgan Freeman is very cool and collected. And I feel like Pacino can be a little more abrasive, In the delivery of his lines, Mm -hmm. which makes him just more forceful as an actor. And I think those are maybe more of the roles he plays. But Morgan can kind of go both ways when he needs to. And I think Morgan here is a better partner to Brad Pitt.
0: I agree. I think that while I love Pacino, I think young Pacino, so if this were made in the 70s, I think he could have totally taken on the Brad Pitt part. But 90s Pacino is a different story. 90s Pacino. Is known and loved for the camp. And the Michael Mann movie Heat came out the same year as Seven. So I don't know how well that would have gone if we had Heat, which is also another crime thriller. And we have Seven. And I think too with Morgan Freeman, is there anything better than a Morgan Freeman voiceover? I'm typically not, not a fan, at all. but there is something so perfect about it and just so.
1: His voice is so soothing.
0: Yeah. It's something about when he reads some of those lines and he's just. it just it works so well so we have two more casting bits Val Kilmer was actually considered for the Kevin Spacey part I think Kevin Spacey's perfect as John Doe I think it works he's he's really good in this and also Gwyneth Paltrow didn't want to do seven because she also thought it was too dark but Brad Pitt was her boyfriend at the time and that's why she took the part
1: what love can do
0: gave us a great cast (laughs) I think Gwyneth (laughs) is perfect in that part too
1: she is and it reminds me of Talented Mr. Ripley or the character she plays in that.
0: She's like that little bit of goodness.
1: Yep. And that young, pure spirit. And that wasn't too long after Seven came out either.
0: With directing, Guillermo del Toro and David Cronenberg both turned down the opportunity to direct Seven.
1: Those are interesting choices though, because they both have that horror lean as well. And it could have been just as creepy.
0: So let's get into some quotes. The movie ends with a really great quote. Morgan Freeman doing the voiceover. He says, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Just perfect Morgan Freeman.
1: And all of this coming after, of course, the final standoff between the two cops and John Doe having this strange delivery by this truck who approaches, arrives, (laughs) and the driver gets out of the car with... It's fun to note Morgan Freeman pointing his gun at him, which he talks about earlier, how he has never shot a gun before, never killed anybody. Mm -hmm. And this was another one of my favorite moments from the movie because Brad Pitt's like, I shot a guy as we were going in an apartment and he's like, what was his name? And he can't think of his name. And that, again, is just such a perfect dynamic. Of this young guy being so excited to root out evil and it didn't mean anything to him besides that point so before we get to what happens after the truck arrives on the way to this scene in the middle of nowhere they're driving for hours they're talking to John Doe to try to figure out why he did everything and he finally explains that he uses the seven deadly sins to kill these people to turn each sin against the sinner which is so interesting because with society now and the millennial age we're in, like the things we love in terms of social media, which he gets into again with the social network and being obsessed with ourselves. And I think what's so chilling is that is how they describe him earlier in the movie. Morgan Freeman goes, if we catch John Doe and he turns out to be the devil, I mean, if he's Satan himself, that might live up to our expectations. But he's not the devil. He's just a man. And that's what's so creepy and maybe why Fincher revisits the serial killer so often is because he's trying to understand the psyche behind them and really go into these characters, which are such an important part of his movies.
0: Definitely. So thinking back to the murders, which murder did you think was the worst? We don't actually watch any of the murders, but the crime scene. Right. Or just the idea of the murder. Which one is the worst for you?
1: Which is interesting again that he Mm -hmm. doesn't show anything he just shows the aftermath yeah I think the hardest ones for me are so there's the fat man
0: gluttony (laughs) and
1: so with gluttony the explanation is that he kept feeding him to the point that he would throw up and his stomach expanded and his body like exploded and imagining (sighs) that is one of the worst things
0: it's (laughs) and he sewed his
1: body back together
0: (sighs) 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 (laughs) <laughs> the, it's it's so bad that and that's the first murder that we see that's the first crime scene that we get in the movie yeah and it's yeah. just the way it starts out you just know you're in for a hellish experience
1: <laughs> it's like we're each bread pit looking <laughs> under the table and smelling that vomit
0: <laughs> oh my god it's so bad and the other yeah. one I'm really i'm not gonna explain in detail at all Ugh. but the lust it's... murder is the worst possible thing you can think of it just yeah. it makes me so sick Oof.
1: just the way the victim the man who was involved expresses the actions and what happened in the mm-hmm. interrogation room mm-hmm. and he's like so frozen and cold and crying Right. And flashing back to what he had to wear is just, yeah that's so disturbing.
0: And it's also so disturbing because he's making someone else do it. So hearing no. the other perspective in it is what makes it that much more sickening. All right, so our ending. So throughout the film, we see murders that coincide with five of the seven deadly sins we have. We have gluttony, lust, pride, greed, and sloth. So we get those. There are two left. We have envy, and we have wrath. And the way that we get those in the end, if you've heard an iconic quote from Seven, you've definitely heard what's in the box. Or if you've heard that and you never knew where it was from, now you know. (laughs) But that delivery man that you mentioned, he delivers this box. Somerset, Morgan Freeman, goes to look in the box. And we don't actually see what's in the box, which I think is another really important detail. And skill that Fincher has here of what he's choosing to show us and what he isn't. Because we see Somerset's reaction and we hear John Doe tell Mills, Brad Pitt, that he took a souvenir from his wife and it was her head. So we know that Mm -hmm. her head is what's in the box.
1: The whole scene is shot so well. Mm -hmm. And I read an article about the lighting during the scene and Mm -hmm. how Kevin Spacey, the lighting around him changes a lot, but he's backlit in one part almost as if he had a halo Mm -hmm. and he's this like god figure shot from below which is like very brooding and watching brad pitt freak out inside and become so emotional and not know how to deal with everything and Mm -hmm. morgan says put the gun down you know he wins if you kill him Mm -hmm. and he has to kill him because he just (sighs) murdered his wife and child that he didn't even know about it's the perfect ending
0: yeah it's the perfect ending and it wraps it up in a way that is just so so dark and one of the things that John Doe says to Mills is he says become wrath the sin that he feels he's living his life by and mm-hmm. he also shares perhaps I'm envy so those two represent the last of the sins and of course yeah like you said Brad Pitt has to kill him and you just see his anguish in that moment too because he he goes from what's in the box to what's in the box like just like <laughs>
1: And I I love how he makes Brad Pitt the only living victim
0: Mm -hmm.
1: of his crimes. Chef's kiss on all of that.
0: You think his wrath is going to go away, right? Mm, No. no. Mm Oh, man. So which villain do you think is scarier, John Doe or Mark Zuckerberg?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely John Doe for me. We'll get to Mark in a bit. But I do not want to know how this man thought of all these crimes, hatched his entire plan. Mm-hmm. So, this sloth murder, he didn't even die, but he had him tied up for a year. And the fact that he was planning this for that long, I just, I can't. It's like, so sick. those are nightmares.
0: So one really interesting thing I noticed when I went back and watched was that there are a couple actually of shots where we see Gwyneth Paltrow laying on the bed and it's just her head. We just see the blonde Mm -hmm. hair. So we kind of know if you're rewatching that her head is going to play a really big part in the film. And comparing Fincher to Hitchcock, Hitchcock had this fascination with blondes, with blonde actresses. You think of Tippi Hedren, Grace Kelly, Kim Novak, all these women in his films, In Gone Girl, we have another blonde, we have Amy, and Gone Girl opens with a shot of Amy's head where we just see her blonde hair in a very similar way with Nick Dunn's voiceover saying, when I think of my wife, I always think of her head, and I was just blown away by that parallel and that similarity. It was was spooky. It really freaked me out.
1: And that's something he definitely put in to recall this movie.
0: So Seven, this is the only movie we'll do this with because we'll fly through the others. But if you could give Seven one Oscar, what would you give it?
1: I mean, I know know it was nominated for editing, and I probably would give it that. What about you?
0: So I think I would give it Best Director. I think it's a really impressive feat. And if we're thinking of the Oscars that year, Mel Gibson won for Braveheart. Like, I would love to take that away from him. We also have... (laughs) Chris Noonan for Babe, Tim Robbins for Dead Man Walking, Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas, and Michael Radford for Il Postino. There's definitely room for venture.
1: Yeah, I'm down for that. So next up is a movie I adore. I've revisited multiple times, The Game, released on September twelfth, 1997. So we're very close to it hitting 23 years. How do you feel about this movie?
0: So this was my first time watching it, actually. And I think because of that, I was looking for a lot of the Fincher hallmarks that I love, and Mm -hmm. I didn't find them there as much as in some of the others. So I didn't find it to be as aesthetically pleasing, but I did think it was a great thriller. I'm not personally drawn to Michael Douglas as a leading man very much, so I think that could have been part of it too, and I didn't find him and Sean Penn to be believable as brothers. I did enjoy it, but it was not one of my favorite Finchers.
1: Wow. Rude. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is different. And since this is in the first half of his career, Mm -hmm. he's still kind of getting his bearings on what he wants to use throughout. But I think this is definitely a stepping stone for him and how a lot of his thriller aspects are formed in later films. So I just, I love the idea of the whole movie being a game. Michael Douglas's character, he's this really wealthy banker, and for his birthday, his brother, played by Sean Penn, has given him this gift to participate in this thing, and he doesn't really even know what it is. So he signs up and gets a call that he was rejected, and then ensues this crazy ride where you don't know what's real, what's... Fake, what's the game, what's not the game, and the ending is really just keeps you on your toes until the very, very end.
0: I agree with all of that. And it to me, I think almost felt more like a Nolan movie than a Fincher one, which okay. could also make sense as to why you like it a lot. It felt very the idea of the game being within the movie, but also the movie itself being like a game for viewers. Mm-hmm. I think that is very Nolan like. Mm -hmm. One thing I do want to talk about, though, is that title sequence. Because watching it in 2020, when your favorite TV show is Succession, it is impossible not to see that as just... I thought, did they consult these artists before they made the title sequence of Succession? It's like grainy home video footage of this wealthy man and his children and this seemingly idyllic life that they live that then takes a sour turn and seems more shallow and then ultimately very depressing I I mean it was almost beat for beat the same except in succession we don't have the father's suicide but otherwise
1: well I think that's what's so not only dark but satisfying in a way it's that he uses this memory of his father's suicide on his 48th birthday and now it's his 48th birthday. And the ending, once you think about it from his perspective, I mean, he breaks down because he has just been pushed to his very, very limits. And the fact that he pretty much followed suit in his father's footsteps is so chilling.
0: It is. And I think, too, that I'm liking it more as I talk about it. And I think too, an interesting part is that, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's hard for it to crack a top five in a list of venture for me. It's just challenging. But, you know, the idea that this could be something, there could be something like this that is happening, maybe, and we just don't know about it.
1: It's horrifying. It's so yeah. scary. I mean, it's in one way, it's super exciting. And the way the characters talk about, oh, I wish I could go back to my first time. It's like, you want to experience that, but then mm-hmm. you see what happens in the movie. And it's like, why would you ever want to go through this?
0: Yeah. Oh, it's sick.
1: <laughs> so I really recommend this one. Next up is Fight Club.
0: Maybe the most iconic. Is it,
1: I think in terms of names... I think this was the first movie I saw of Fincher's Mm -hmm. because it's so well known. Mm -hmm. And really, it has the same power that saying Pulp Fiction has.
0: So let me ask you something. What percentage of college boys do you think have a Fight Club poster (laughs) on their walls?
1: (laughs) It's got to be more than like 65%.
0: Yeah, I was going to say anywhere from the like 55 to 70 range. So I think (laughs) (laughs) we're right on the money.
1: But on rewatch, I was not a fan at all. Really? It's masculinity shoved down your throat. And it has some interesting ideas. And it's probably one of the biggest twists of the 90s. But I don't know. I think once you know the ending, it's not as shocking anymore.
0: Yeah, I think that knowing the ending going into it isn't as it's not as fun as when you first see it. So the masculinity conversation is interesting, because I think that's definitely a read on it, and I see that. I like the worlds that he creates, and I think that the contrast between the narrator, it's just sterile office environments, a lot of harsh yellow lighting to Tyler Durden's grimy, very red, dark lighting one is complete, you're a complete drone of the system, and the other is rebellion. I like how he sets that up and what the contrast looks like there.
1: Well, this whole anti-establishment world or, you know, setup is kind of started in the game, and I think it was more fully fleshed out here, which I really like, and really something else that he puts in every single one of his movies is how anti-cop he is. Which I really noticed because of the recent protests and all of the backlash against police brutality, which mm-hmm. really I love to see yeah. here. Because, I mean, we could go through and name each movie, but like here specifically, after they kill Bob, they like really hate the cops, which is an interesting sentiment to have and to carry through all of his films. I think he sets up this world to show that it hasn't changed much.
0: Mm hmm. And we're
1: still living in this fantasy of Fight Club where we need to get out all of our aggression from our everyday life because, in a sense, we're drones.
0: Right. And it's also kind of the idea, thinking about the protests, it's like, what is the American dream? If it's just patriarchy and masculinity and following these arbitrary rules, revolutions aren't just following the rules within that system you have to go Mm -hmm. just have an uprising against it but also an iconic brad pitt role
1: right and the beginning of jared leto and a really hot blonde one at that here
0: what no (laughs) no 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 what jared leto you think jared leto is hot
1: i mean i'm not saying no
0: oh dear Fincher has this way of moving the camera where he follows your where your eye naturally goes. It's this really wonderful trick. And he does that with Brad Pitt for me. So I just my eyes go to Brad Pitt and they didn't go to Jared Leto.
1: <laughs> well, you really don't even notice him. He comes in towards the end and again this is towards the beginning of his career and it was just fun to see him. I mean, do you prefer him in Panic Room, which we'll get to?
0: I don't like him anywhere. Like, I really have trouble. (laughs) I'm not a fan.
1: Dallas Buyers Glow, Requiem for a Dream.
0: (laughs) No across the board.
1: (laughs) Okay, so next up on our list is Panic Room. Another one of my favorites that I'm not sure you liked as much.
0: No, I love Panic Room. Oh, okay. I think it's a lot of fun.
1: I think it's his most fun because it's pretty surface level. It's about a mother who is recently divorced and her daughter... Played by Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart, who are trying to find a new apartment in New York City, in the rich part of New York City. Yes. (laughs) And they find a home that's pretty perfect and has everything, and it actually has a panic room in it. And so the night they move in, these men come to rob the house of these stored bonds. We find out of many millions of dollars. So it's a fun thrill ride, but again, it's pretty surface level and least character developed, I want to say. How do you feel about it?
0: I think it's totally fair to say like it is his most kind of standard thriller. This would be the one where, let's say you put them all in theaters and you have the same test group, go to all of them. I think that this one across the board is the one that's the most audience-friendly it's an easier watch. It's not too long. Mm-hmm. The action starts right away. And once it starts, you really can't stop watching. Like, you're completely in it. And I think it is his most surface level, but I'll also say, I think it is really impressive for what it accomplishes like, on one set.
1: So fun facts about the filming. I think it they had, like, 130 days to film, which apparently is pretty short, mm-hmm. according to Fincher. And he actually rebuilt the entire four story brownstone on a soundstage where they could drive. They like laid pavement inside the soundstage. They built the house over 15 weeks for $6 million. So what you see in the movie is like a recreation, which is insane to me.
0: Yeah. And I think Kristen Stewart and Jodie Foster are such a believable mother and daughter pair. And this Mm -hmm. was actually my first venture that I watched. So I think that Mm -hmm. my love of him and his keen eye towards suspense really comes from the fact that that was my first viewing experience of his movies.
1: I love the scene where she's in the bath and she's just drinking the wine and starts crying and I feel like Jodi is that emotional motherly presence. Mm -hmm. But what's really fun and interesting is that Nicole Kidman actually was cast and was playing was 18 days into shooting. And then Jodie had replaced her. I have no idea why. And then also Hayden Panettiere was actually supposed to play the daughter. But then this young Kristen Stewart came in and replaced her as well.
0: Mm. I think I read that Nicole Kidman got injured on the set of Moulin Rouge and (laughs) couldn't continue filming. Wow. Wow. We'll fact check that. But it's a totally different movie with Nicole Kidman.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I think that Nicole Kidman is much more elegant and Jodie Foster is much more Mm -hmm. formidable and I think we believe her in this role more so than I would believe Nicole Kidman. It would just be a different movie and I think too the role that I think of when I think of Jodie Foster is Silence of the Lambs and knowing what we know about Clarice it's impossible I think to separate them because I think of her as this very strong powerful woman who is going to win out in the end.
1: I think one of Jodi's first films being Taxi Driver playing this young prostitute. And I think Jodi just has a thicker skin. I think Big Little Ice has shown maybe a slightly different side to Nicole, but she's more fragile to me as an actress, which isn't a bad thing. It's just a different role. And this gets to be a more physical role in movie as it goes on. Mm-hmm. And as they're fighting with the men escaping the panic room.
0: The plot twist of... Kristen Stewart's character having diabetes and that functioning as a plot device of why they'll need to leave the panic room I thought was really smart because I think that to keep the tension up and to keep the story going they have to exit the panic room at some point to keep that Mm -hmm. you know alive and having that be the reason why it adds even more to Jodie's performance and her character as this Mother who's willing to do anything for her child and for the safety of her child while still just she's so fierce in the part and she's mm-hmm. she's brilliant in everything that she's in. I think that she's just one of those actresses, but in this one, it's just I feel like it's a perfect part for her and just I can't that's why I can't see it working with anyone else quite as well.
1: Using diabetes and using it correctly as a plot device is just amazing for a filmmaker because a lot of times medical conditions are placed in films unnecessarily, and mm-hmm. I don't think we've had, like, diabetes as a central role since Steel Magnolias. And I think it's amazing that he did this, and there's representation to people with this disease. I mean, insulin has been such a big conversation recently and the cost of medication, so even getting into that, even though it doesn't at all as a film, is is noteworthy.
0: I agree. So we mentioned Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart, I think, to seeing Forrest Whitaker and your guy, Jared Leto, (laughs) 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 back in this one. I think that The dynamic between the guys that break into the house and between the mother and daughter in separate rooms throughout the movie works really well too and definitely keeps your attention. And I don't know, I like this one more than you expected, I think. But okay, yeah. good.
1: You really need to go watch this documentary I found on YouTube because it goes into how they shot and the restrictions to being in a house and wanting to do different shots and it being just really difficult. So I think that's why he uses CGI here and he uses it more so in the camera movements and to keep things very fluid and i think that ends up becoming one of his tactics as a filmmaker throughout his next few films and then also in the documentary they show how some of these sequences and like all of the action is actually done like the flying canister of propane oh yeah was actually on set and Jared Leto was actually on fire
0: the hottest it's he's ever been. Very
1: cool. <laughs> Literally.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bad joke.
1: Um, again, we have an A cab friendly David Fincher, which is great. And the cops <laughs> coming up to the door, and Jody just oh, she's really so putting good in that scene. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah,
0: she's so good in it. I'm like, are you kidding me? How do you not notice this? But
1: and I think in the beginning, I think when the real estate agent is selling them the house. They go, it couldn't be safer, and that's just the start of everything Mm -hmm. that happens is Mm -hmm. so ironic.
0: So, Zodiac, of course, came out in 2007, and brief description here. In the late 1960s and 70s, fear grips the city of San Francisco as a serial killer called Zodiac stalks its residents. Investigators Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, and reporters Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr., become obsessed with learning the killer's identity and bringing him to justice. Meanwhile, Zodiac claims victim after victim and taunts the authorities with cryptic messages, ciphers, and menacing phone calls. I love this one so much.
1: I think it's a new way to look at a serial killer crime thriller, as in they're trying to figure out who it is and not really spoiler alert, but it's a true story. We don't really end up finding out who it is. We do, but we don't which is spooky, and I don't know. I think I've, I love this more in the past, and this time it's, I think for me, too long as a crime thriller.
0: It's because it's not a crime thriller in the standard sense. Like it's not... Right. It's much more a portrait of an era and a portrait of the mood and what was happening with the Zodiac Killer. It involves the journalists and the police and family sitting at their table trying to solve the clues that he left behind. And I think also it's a portrait of obsession, which I find really interesting coming from Fincher. I love the way that he lights this film. I love the color contrasts. The performances are excellent, especially Jake Gyllenhaal, I think. And I think it is the scariest scenes from any Fincher.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, the basement scene is maybe the second or scariest thing I've seen tied with rear window at the end like that is the most uncomfortable I've ever been and I'll compare that basement scene to another in a little bit
0: so the scene that I think is actually the scariest is the one where they're the couple is just like out on the water like on the shore Mm -hmm. and it's broad daylight no one else is around and he just comes out of nowhere and starts attacking them the tension that's there the idea that it's it's broad daylight and this is happening and I think it's just the idea too of the crime scenes that he chooses to capture it's kind of like reading the case file it's like the case file coming to life of this killer who's never been caught and the crimes that we actually see happening those are ones where we had an eyewitness and the ones that mm-hmm. we don't they're all a mystery to us we don't know and I I love that in most of Fincher's films, we have these really tidy endings, whether they're, they they are gut you like Seven, or we have the needle drop in Fight Club. This one is so ambiguous, and it, we desire closure in the film, but we can't get it because the case has never had closure, and I love that.
1: I think maybe because it was unresolved, maybe that's why I thought it ran too long, because I feel like with if- movies that are long and slowly chugging along, there's something that's going to happen. And that's a plus and minus because it is part of the magic that Fincher really stands behind is that he wants to leave things ambiguous and he wants you to find things out and he's not going to clue you along the way. And I do like that.
0: This one too, like we've talked about before, you don't like when there's an ending and there's nothing happening up to that point either with right. slow burns. Right. And this one is it's it's long because it spans decades it's the yeah the events that we see are significant and the major life events of characters that we would consider to be significant like weddings births anything like that we don't see because they're totally insignificant Mm -hmm. to this killer and to the era of how this zodiac killer swept up everything and we still don't really know
1: I do like how he uses the music and the culture of the era to really define this film. And it is kind of chilling when, because there are so many timestamps in the movie, Mm -hmm. it's like four years later, halfway through the film, and it's like, oh my God, this this went on for so long. And I just finished watching I'll Be Gone in the Dark, Mm -hmm. which is a series on HBO about Mm -hmm. the Golden State Killer. And actually today, he just got sentenced to like 26 years in prison, which is- crazy. So a lot of things in this case, I mean, this also happened in California Mm -hmm. in like the 70s and there was a big span where he stopped. So a lot of similarities that I found even more disturbing.
0: So since there isn't really anything to give away, last question, (laughs) do you think that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac?
1: I wonder why they denied him twice as the killer because he did fit all of the boxes along the way, even early on. And maybe that's also so different as a crime film is that we were introduced to him so early and usually that doesn't happen that it's almost like we knew this guy was the person 20 minutes in and it took us two and a half hours to get here, back to this place. So I don't know. I mean, to me it does, it might've just been Fincher putting in shots there like in the end when Jake goes to see him and he just stares at him and then a bunch more time passes and then we come back. So Mm -hmm. Do you think so, or?
0: Yeah, I think it, so I'm just torn because I do think it was him, but I also always wonder, do I think this just because I want closure, and it's easier for me if I know, but who knows? Well, I recommend Zodiac. It's on Netflix. Let's move on to another (laughs) long one, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button.
1: His longest of the bunch. You feel it. You really do. And I actually liked this one. Watching it again, I wasn't like watching it intently for the entire two hours and 48 minutes. But it had so many grand themes that I appreciated. And I'm not surprised that this was most acclaimed by the Academy. I had read the short story way back when it was released. Oh, really? And yeah. I mean, it's really short. He adds a lot to the story to make it watchable, but... Mm.
0: So I feel like the term Benjamin Button is kind of used in pop culture, whether you've seen the movie or not, but the story mm-hmm. was adapted from a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald and it tells the story of Benjamin Button, who is a man that ages backwards.
1: There's not much to There's say. There's not much to say. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: stars Brad Pitt and Cate Blanchett and a bunch of other random supporting actors, Herschel Ali. Your
1: favorite. Elle, Elle Fanning. Fanning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Taraji P. Henson.
1: I think she was the best, maybe.
0: Yeah, I liked her. Me.
1: I mean, Ben is central, obviously, but. And really, Kate has some great moments. She does. Just in her fluid movements as a dancer, mm-hmm. but also in her speech.
0: Her bone structure in this is just amazing like her when she has like her hair in a ponytail i'm like oh my god and she's just so elegant and graceful so she's a perfect dancer but brad pitt in it so third feature film of Fincher's with brad pitt and because i'm me i checked the time and brad pitt wasn't like brad pitt how we think of him until almost the two hour mark
1: yeah and he's not there for long either
0: So this movie was nominated for quite a few Oscars. David Fincher's first Best Director nomination. So it won three Oscars. It won achievement, art direction, makeup, and visual effects. And it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Brad Pitt, Best Supporting Actress for Taraji P. Henson, Best Director for Fincher, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Costume Design. Best Score and Best Sound Mixing. That's a lot.
1: So the most nominations is with Titanic, which has 14. This is not far behind. (laughs) It's not right.
0: (laughs) It's really not. And there's a lot of craft that goes into it. It is a really beautiful film. It's beautiful to look at. It's just bizarre. Mm
1: -hmm. What I like about the nominations is that Eric Roth, who was nominated for the screenplay, had his first win in 1995 for Forrest Gump was also nominated for The Insider in Munich for this film and then A Star is Born in 2019. He also wrote the upcoming Dune so there is a strong chance he'll have a nomination there.
0: Dune is an an epic source material so I can see it. I have a Brad Pitt question for you before we move on. Mary F. Kill, Brad Pitt as Benjamin Button, Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden in Fight Club, Or Brad Pitt as Detective Mills in Seven.
1: Do we get to choose which age he is in Benjamin Button? Yeah, you
0: can choose which age.
1: Oh, okay. So that's kind of easy. Yeah. I would kill Mills, F Durden, and then marry, honestly, like, real-life non-CGI Brad in Button.
0: That's, like, exactly what I would do. Because you can't marry (laughs) Seven Brad Pitt because your head would end up in a box. And the Tyler Durden character is just, I mean... There's only one place to put them. Moving on to the social network, which turns 10 on October 1st, which is also wild. And we talked a lot about the social network on our Oscars of the Decade 2010s episodes. We won't go too far into it. So it's all about the creation of Facebook and the drama that ensues. What works really well in this film, honestly, everything, but I think the combination of Sorkin's writing and Fincher's directing really play well off of each other. You have this really fast-moving, quippy script that feels often like a procedural, something like All the President's Men paired with Fincher's eye for Detail and just this perfect expression of mood and of what the setting was like then. And honestly, what we talked about last time that still stands true is that this is an incredibly prescient film. It was a 2010 film that Told the story of our decade in a way that only David Fincher knew, I suppose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you like about it?
1: This film is so rewatchable. It's exciting every time you watch it. The first few scenes are iconic. Mm -hmm. And Rooney Mara just can do no wrong. She's amazing. The script, obviously, is great. And I don't know if I noticed Aaron Sorkin appearing later on in previous watches, but he does. He's one of the lawyers. And I think his addition to this film only makes it so much more iconic, but I don't think it's, say, a typical Fincher. I do love it so much, and I think it defined the moment. Revisiting the beginnings of Facebook and just how social media has evolved, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this movie forever, really. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think in ways it's not a typical Fincher, but in other ways what's so interesting is that he loves... He loves watching men shoot themselves in the foot in his films. That happens quite often. Mm -hmm. And he makes very honest portrayals of badly behaving people and captures everything that they do wrong and what the consequences are. And I think he also is, he's so brilliant at similar to Zodiac capturing the essence of an era and of a time. And that, Mm-hmm. early 2000s, I think because we're not that far removed from it, doesn't feel like an era. It doesn't feel like a, a time period. And you're right, we'll be talking about it forever.
1: And maybe it's because I've watched it over and over again that each viewing distances me from my original watch. And I don't rewatch films often. I know I've said that before. So the fact that I do, I think, changes each time I watch it. It's It's really one of those movies you just want to watch at a midnight screening like Rocky Horror and like throw bread at the screen and like quote every single line because it's just fun.
0: The lines are so good. I mean they just start to finish are impeccable. Dating you is like dating a Stairmaster. That's the, like the first five minutes.
1: <laughs> Everything from the Winklevi and Apple Apple teenies. It's just oh my every gosh. small thing that happens is iconic.
0: Dakota Johnson's in it. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I love.
1: I love the pacing and how things are presented and then how they're resolved in the intercutting between the court scenes in the present and the past when we're just kind of meeting all these characters and going through the drama.
0: My other favorite quote is when Tyler Winklevoss says, I'm 6'5", 220 pounds, and there are two of me. (laughs) So (laughs) good. We'll come back to him later. So the social network ended up winning three Oscars. It won Best Adapted Screenplay for Aaron Sorkin, Best Editing, and Best Original Score for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Jesse Eisenberg, Best Director for David Fincher, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound Mixing. It's such a shame that this movie didn't win more Oscars.
1: Yeah, I'm at least it won the Golden Globe for Director and Picture
0: The one time the Hollywood foreign press got it right. (laughs) But to lose to Tom Hooper for director and to the King's Speech for picture is one of the greatest Oscar sins and tragedies that's ever happened.
1: So our next film is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which had already been made in Europe, but Fincher decided to take this on again. It's based on the novel, which is really one of my favorites. It's a nonstop thrill ride. Mm -hmm. So it's about a journalist who in this film is played by Daniel Craig who's aided in his search for a woman who has been missing for 40 years by Lisbeth Salander, who is played by Rooney Mara, a young computer hacker. It's intense. Another great scene towards the end. Christopher Plummer is amazing.
0: Yeah. I When I watched this, I thought, I really like this. I don't get why it has the reputation that it does of being one of his least impressive or a subpar fincher because i didn't see it that way at all and i'm wondering why i have a hypothesis so i think part of the reason why i guess is because and this is the only real reason i can come up with is that daniel craig is in it and this movie came out in 2011 and in that time daniel craig was right in the thick of being bond we had quantum of solace in 08 we had skyfall in 2012 So this is sandwiched right in between those. And I think that when I see Daniel Craig in a thriller, I think Bond. And I can't separate him from Bond unless it's a completely different role, like something ridiculous like Knives Out, for instance. So I'm wondering if audiences had trouble with that, and that that's why they didn't end up adapting the other books with Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara like they were going to. The project just stalled, and I'm wondering if it was just a bad casting decision. I think he's good in this movie, but I'm wondering if audiences couldn't separate that.
1: I feel like a lot of people who saw... This one hadn't seen the Swedish trilogy, and there actually were all three films adapted from Stieg Larson, but those all came out in 2009, and this came out in 2011, but I still think Fincher adds something totally different to it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think on paper, this is like, this is a perfect text for him to adapt. Like, I would rather see him do something like this than a Benjamin Button any day.
1: I agree. I think Numi Rapaz and Rooney Mara are both so strong playing Lisbeth. I think they both did an amazing job.
0: Yeah, I think so too. So it's not
1: like I want one over the other. So, thinking back to the basement scene in Zodiac. There's an interesting correlation because towards the end of this movie, Daniel Craig goes into who he presumes to be the killer's house and looks around and finds this locked door and then he comes home. So he has to escape and then he ends up slipping in the back and the guy played by Stellan Skarsgård sees him and he says, oh, you should come in and have a drink. And Craig is very weary, but he goes in. And then long story short, he ends up being captured in the basement and tied up to be killed. And Stellan later says, you know, people are so afraid to not be polite, but it ends up costing them their lives. And that's exactly what happened. Well, could have happened in Zodiac because the guy says, no, I wrote those posters. And the whole time they're trying to match the handwriting. Mm -hmm. And then Jake thinks it's him, but he goes in the basement anyway. It's like, do you not learn?
0: No, they don't listen to my favorite murder, clearly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I loved that little bit that Fincher added into both.
0: I love that too. I hadn't thought about that. And that that's a really good comparison.
1: So this actually won an Oscar for Best Editing and was nominated for Best Actress for Rooney Mara, Best Cinematography, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Sound Editing. So it had a lot of nominations.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember Rooney Mara being like a really big deal in it. So, Gone Girl, which came out in 2014, which was Fincher's last film adaptation that we have, it is based on the very popular novel by Gillian Flynn, the same name, and general plot here. With his wife's disappearance having become the focus of an intense media circus, a man sees the spotlight turned on him when it's suspected that he may not be innocent. This movie stars Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike as the two leads, and features a wonderful supporting performance by Carrie Coon.
1: Mm, a favorite, always. Ugh, she's so good.
0: She's so good. I think most people have seen this. It was very popular. I know you did nominate it in our popular Oscars, but it was very popular. <laughs> did we very go, well. <laughs> One of Fincher's most successful movies at the box office. I think there's a lot to love about it. It's For me, it's, it's so rewatchable. I can put it on really any time. And I think it's because I find Amy to be... Such a compelling, fascinating, villainous character. I just love watching everything that she does.
1: She's definitely one of Fincher's strongest and most iconic characters. This is a great adaptation. I actually hadn't seen this since it was released. Really? Six years ago. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't rewatch movies.
0: That's so crazy I to really
1: me. liked it. And watching... So I had just read the book before uh-huh. I saw the movie. Yeah. Which I'm not sure why I do this because I end up, I end up hating the movie mm-hmm. because it wasn't like the book and the yeah. thrills I had and everything mm-hmm. I envisioned. But mm-hmm. this was great on <gasps> rewatch and what seeing that blood spilled <gasps> all over Amy. Just like, <sighs> again, the color contrast that he chooses mm-hmm. and it
0: uh, it's it just great. The, it's such a good Movie And I've read the book, too, and I love the book, but I think that the things that, yeah, he chooses to add in and his eye and what he says that's so fascinating about this is he wanted to study marriage as this portrait of narcissism and how when you start dating someone, everybody inevitably puts the best projection of themselves out there. It's an ideal And marriage is what happens when you find the truth and that falls apart. And just that idea of that's how he views marriage and relationships, bringing that then to this film is so, it's why it works. And I think too, having, I've said before, Ben Affleck as Nick Dunn, I think is the best casting choice that's been made in the 21st century. And I think that Rosamund Pike is the perfect Amy. He couldn't put a finger on her and chose her because of that. So... I have a piping hot take here. Potentially, the only thing I don't like about Gone Girl, the only thing that takes me out of the movie, is Neil Patrick Harris as Desi. It is so distracting to me, and I think he just doesn't work Same. in the part.
1: No, not at all. I mean, I get that he was this college friend, if you want to even call him that, who was like very nerd cute. But there's so many other actors that could have done that way better. I just yeah I don't believe him to be this guy.
0: Yeah and my proposal what's crazy to me I don't know if he had a scheduling conflict or what but Army Hammer is the perfect choice for Desi. He has that prep school wealthy vibe. He doesn't have that midwestern salt of the earth thing that she likes in Nick. He's very like New England preppy to me. Or like New York Mm -hmm. prepster. And you can totally see how he would be obsessed with her. And he seems, you know, kind of weak emotionally. And like he would fall for all of that. I think he he would be a perfect choice. And he also, I love that. I would love a visual of like him and Nick eye to eye because they're both very tall, but they're both so different. And I just feel like that would have been such a perfect moment. Not that I know any better than Fincher at all, but if I could recast any of his roles... In any of his movies, it would be that one.
1: If Army would have played this unlike anything he's done before and like chilled us, I would have absolutely loved that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when she kills him, I think it would be even more powerful to see that of somebody who is stronger than NPH and way more satisfying.
0: One of my other favorite parts of this, of why it works so well, and Fincher talks about this in the director's commentary, is that he had a really hard time with studio execs because he was very firm about not using any material in the trailers or teaser from the second half of the movie because he didn't want to give anything away about what happened. And he's like, sorry, Mm -hmm. you have 54 minutes to use because we cannot give anything away.
1: I mean, he needs to have... I love that he has a say and he wanted to have that power because I think trailers affect how audiences perceive films at least I do. Mm-hmm. I mean if I see too much I lose interest and I want it to excite me without giving much away. Mm-hmm. Just like what Tenet has done. I love that we have that we've no come idea back. what's going on. And I'm not sure people who have seen it now that reviews are out even understand what's happening still but <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs>
0: Me too, honestly. And Rosamund Pike, we've talked about, she actually got an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for this. I think the standout scene in this film, there are tons of really amazing shots, but the standout scene is the cool girl monologue, which I'm going to spare you all from doing a dramatic reading of, even though I would love to, but we just don't have time. We're already running really long.
1: Yeah. Oof. Sorry.
0: But I do have to ask you, Um. are you more of a Nick or an Amy?
1: In the sense of, however you want to take it, revenge or
0: however you want to take it.
1: (laughs) Wow, this is tough because I definitely see parts of them in me. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. Are you like 100% Amy?
0: No, I think I'm a Nick. (laughs) Is that wrong? I feel like I
1: would see you more of an Amy. Really? Yeah.
0: I don't know if that's good or not. (laughs) So my Nick thing is like I have a villainous chin. I'm from the Midwest. I think Velveeta is a cheese.
1: Velveeta is not a cheese. So I'm an Amy in the, from the card.
0: But I guess I am very organized and I do love a good to do list and I like being prepared. And I would get mad and at everything right. that Nick does and being right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm an Amy. No, I think fine. we
1: both. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're just both split. We both hmm. have characteristics of both.
0: Yeah. So our next feature we have is Mank which is coming out this fall. We both have talked about it so much on this podcast, but cannot wait to see how he tackles old Hollywood, Citizen Kane.
1: One of the crew teased that it would be coming out in October, but that was never officially stated. So, I mean, I'm hoping it's October. It's definitely happening. It's Netflix. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm ready for this too. And I think going back through and watching all of his films, I really didn't expect this to be a thriller being like a biographical true tale. So again, very intrigued and interested to see how this is either going to be unsettling or be like this big thriller.
0: Well, one thing that we've talked about that we know is he knows how to capture an era and he loves that old Hollywood glamour. So I think it'll be... I have really high expectations and hopes for it.
1: On IMDb, he does have another film that he's working on called Strangers, which is a Patricia Highsmith novel, which we love. And Ben Affleck and Gillian Flynn are co-screenwriters. It's about a murder plot hatched by two men who meet on a train.
0: So this is a remake of Strangers on a Train. Wait, they've been trying to do this for years. I remember like back in 2015, 2016, they were talking about doing this. And then I think it just hasn't happened.
1: Maybe it's just changed directors. Was anyone else attached to you know?
0: It doesn't look like it. I just pulled up the IMDb.
1: Okay, so I figured this would be just a fun little game doing some superlatives for Fincher's films. So after each adjective we use... We'll have to name what we think. And we'll. I'm interested to see if we...
0: If we ever agree. <laughs>
1: agree or not. <laughs> so Fincher's most ambitious film.
0: Zodiac. Yeah. What do you think?
1: I would say Benjamin Button.
0: Most disappointing.
1: Alien 3.
0: Alien 3 is my answer too. Mm-hmm. I think it's only one okay. really.
1: Most impressive.
0: The Social Network. What about you?
1: I think I would favor The Social Network, but 7 is really, really close.
0: Most unique
1: i'm gonna say fight club
0: that's my answer too fight club
1: oh most pleasing
0: gone girl
1: <laughs> mine would be the social network
0: that's i mean that's a good yeah. answer most bizarre
1: i think also fight club
0: mm. i would say the curious case of benjamin button <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay yeah i think you're right <laughs> most rewatchable gone girl who we're like really split. Yeah. I'm going to say social network again.
0: <laughs> you, Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that would be my other one. That would be my number two. I just like, I throw Gone Girl on too often. Most forgotten.
1: If we couldn't pick Alien 3, I'm going to make that stipulation. Mm-hmm. I think to me it would be Benjamin Button, too, but to like society it would be the game.
0: The game is my answer.
1: The least venture. The game. I think, I think Fight Club.
0: What? Really?
1: Yeah. I just, I don't see Fincher in that movie, really.
0: That is so interesting. Not as much
1: as his other ones.
0: Okay. So kind of to go off of Nick's superlative game, a Fincher character you'd most like to, and then all these different prompts. So the first one (laughs) is solve a crime with.
1: So I think Detective Boney from Gone Girl is really close, but I'd go with Detective Somerset from
0: Seven. I would pick Detective Boney from Gone Girl. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love how she just fully comes around at the end and she's like so committed the whole entire time. So I would love to have her on my side.
1: So the character you most like to play a board game at the bar with.
0: Amy Dunn. <laughs> I'd wanna see if I could beat her. I feel like it we would be it would be an interesting match and it would depend on what the game was, but I would like to beat her.
1: I think I'd play with Robert Graysmith, who is Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac, Mm. just because he loves games so much. I mean, I think it would infuriate me because he'd be so good, Mm -hmm. but... Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, who would you want to be trapped in a panic room with?
1: I will say Eduardo Saverin, who is Andrew Garfield Mm. in Social Network.
0: Good choice. (laughs) I'm going practical here and saying Lisbeth Salander because oh my God. she could get <laughs> me out of talk. there so quickly <laughs> and get everyone else out of that building and figure out some way to get me out of there and to get me back to safety.
1: <laughs> yeah, she would have rerouted those wires so much right? faster than they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking practically here.
1: <laughs> would you most like to take a road trip with?
0: I would love to take a road trip with Detective Somerset from Seven, a.k.a. Morgan Freeman, because I think that we could talk about a lot of great works of literature. He would tell me really great stories about his past as a detective, and I feel like we would get along, and I would just love to hear Morgan Freeman's voice the entire trip.
1: I think I'd pick Margot Dunn Mm. from Gone Girl.
0: That's a good pick. I was thinking about her, too, but I wanted to (laughs) spread out my Gone Girl stuff.
1: (laughs) I mean, also just Carrie Coon, but I think Mm -hmm. even... Her character, too, is very personable.
0: Okay, who would you want to start a business with?
1: I mean, knowing the Mark Zuckerberg we know and how much of a nightmare he is in this film, no thank you. Mm -hmm. Nor Sean Parker, who is obnoxious. I think I'd go with Lizbeth here.
0: Yeah, I mean, she she knows her way around a bank and offshore accounts.
1: (laughs) All you need is like $50,000 and make a few billion so
0: yeah i think who would you pick i would pick eduardo from the social network okay because i would want to prove to him that you can have good business partners like i wouldn't screw him over yeah we can have a good partnership and relationship outside of that even
1: or the winklevi where you could just have a relationship with one and then work with the other
0: <laughs> that's a that's an enterprising idea right there <laughs> i like that
1: Who would you most like to go to a Harvard party with?
0: I think I would like to take Tyler Durden from Fight Club to a Harvard party. (laughs) Because I would like to see him kind of rough up the Ivy League people. Just come in (laughs) like a bat out of hell and just shake things up. Who would you pick?
1: So if I were looking to have a fun time, I would probably choose Conrad, who was Sean Penn in the game. Oh,
0: that's a good one. I like how we picked Gossiping the, opposite, the side of, <laughs> opposite ends <laughs> of the spectrum. Which character would you most like to have as your mentor?
1: I mean, I think this one's easy. I would also choose Detective Somerset.
0: I think I would actually pick Jodie Foster in Panic Room. <laughs>
1: oh.
0: I feel like she's been through it, but she's just really strong and feels like she has a good head on her shoulders. And I just love mm-hmm. the idea of like sitting on a bench in Central Park with Jodie Foster.
1: Who would you most like to drink Aqua Velvas with? Which was the iconic drink from Zodiac. And I really want to recreate and see if it's actually that good. I do too, especially (laughs)
0: because it has vodka and gin in it. I feel like I would like it. I don't know. It looks a little scary, the blue color. I'm just going to make it easy here. And I'm just going to say Robert Graysmith from Zodiac. He's the one who orders it. And I would love to pick his brain about the Zodiac Killer. Who would you pick?
1: I would pick Eric Albright from Social Network.
0: Oh, that's nice. That's a good pick.
1: Yeah. I feel like she'd be a, a good time with.
0: And then who would you introduce to your parents?
1: I almost want to say Jared Leto just to <laughs> busy. you You on. should. <laughs> I don't know. There's no good answer for this. I don't even think I would say Benjamin Button, but <laughs> <laughs> that'd be so creepy.
0: Not if he's, like, at the right age.
1: <laughs> Just break it off when he gets too young. Yeah. <laughs> who would you pick?
0: Oh, this is so easy. You have to know who I would pick. Nick Dunn.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> oh. oh, God.
0: As a Midwesterner, he's totally the guy I would go for. It would make so much sense. And he would totally hit it off with my family. That's oh. problematic you would move as to that Missouri? is. Missouri? No, Become a Missourian. I'm not moving to the navel of this great country, as Amy would say. (laughs) Nothing against Missouri.
1: Okay, so we've made it. We've made it almost almost there. (laughs) We're just going to go through our top five really quickly. Actually, I I made my whole top ten.
0: I made my top ten, too.
1: My tenth would be Alien 3.
0: My tenth is also Alien 3.
1: My ninth is Fight Club.
0: Hmm. My ninth is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My eighth is Benjamin Button, so I could probably interchange those. Those are pretty equal.
0: Yeah. My eighth is The Game.
1: So sad. I'm sorry. My seventh is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
0: My seventh is Panic Room.
1: Okay. My sixth is Zodiac.
0: My sixth (laughs) is Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
1: I feel pretty secure about my top five.
0: I feel very secure about my five. I feel like they haven't really changed that much. Like even on rewatch, Mm -hmm. they didn't change too much. Some of the order within, but these five have kind of been my go-tos. I will make a note. One of them I feel like I put in mainly just because of its cultural impact.
1: My fifth is The Game.
0: My fifth and the movie that I was just referencing is Fight Club.
1: My fourth is Gone Girl.
0: My fourth is Seven.
1: My third is Seven.
0: My third is Gone Girl.
1: My second is Panic Room.
0: My second is The Social Network.
1: Okay, and my first is The Social Network.
0: And my first is Zodiac.
1: Interesting. Yeah. We differ a lot on those. We really do.
0: Well, so we share (laughs) The Social Network, Seven, and Gone Girl. We're all in our Mm -hmm. top fives. But I think the fact that my number one isn't even in your top five. Right. And you have... Panic Room and The Game pretty high. Both of those were in my seven through ten.
1: I think Panic Room for me again is just it's fun. I am so engrossed every time I watch it and it's more of an entertaining film than the others which are I feel like a little bit more in depth but I had to put it up there. I love rewatching.
0: There aren't really bad Fincher films like we talked about Alien 3 and that one's a tougher one but most of these that we talked about are great watches. They all have really unique things going on in them, and they're all really Mm -hmm. beautiful to look at. And I think that if you want to get a taste for who David Fincher is, this is a great American director whose filmography is definitely worth going through, and it's manageable too.
1: Totally. I think making a list was so hard, and some of these were really close to one another because they're all very good. I think a lot of the times, directors are either swayed by the Production companies and make changes based on what they want in their film. And I think because Fincher puts his foot down and does what he wants to do, makes all of these so unique but also great watches. So I agree. I would recommend watching all of his films. I kind of misplaced Alien 3 from any of my superlative games we played, but (laughs) go through an Alien trilogy. I think that would be fun too. So.
0: I think so too. So we can't recommend the works of David Fincher enough.
1: Great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I know this was a longer pod. (laughs) So stay safe and wear your masks.
0: Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our discussion about Fincher and stay safe and wear your masks. We'll see you next time.